Oh, and welcome everybody to According to Andrew, number 101, a review of the book Democracy, The God That Fails by Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, which was an interesting book, um, but I will let you know whether or not you need to read it or not. Um, pictured here is uh, Hoppe, and this is actually a quote from the book uh, that was actually uh, somewhat or quite insightful. Uh, if the right to vote were expanded to seven-year-olds, its policies would most definitely reflect the legitimate concerns of children who have adequate and equal access to free french fries. Uh, lemonade and videos so uh, it goes through a lot of things uh, covers basically the full gambit and uh, does an interesting perspective of kind of citing monarchy as a potential uh, bonus or good that isn't usually brought up especially uh, he's basically a libertarian and uh, it's not usually brought up in those those circles and in the context that he brings it up um, I, th I overall I kind of I agree with some of the message, but I don't necessarily agree with how, his reasoning and how he got there to a certain extent, and we'll talk about that, but uh, overall, it's a good book. It starts pretty dense, um, mainly because he's got to establish the, he's got to establish his philosophical lens and how he's kind of going to figure stuff out, and like, this is how I look at things and analyze things and and my axioms for all this different stuff. So it starts off pretty dense in that regard. And as you go through, once you've kind of got that stuff established, uh, the rest of it uh, reads a lot simpler, in my opinion. Also, as I, it got to the later stages of the book, uh, there's a lot of stuff that was uh, familiar to me personally uh, because of the podcast I listened to. I listened to Part of the Problem uh, and Tom Woods. Uh, part of the Problem I listen to all the time, Tom Woods, I'll, I'll catch an episode here and there, depending on uh, who he's talking to or the topic. Um, so that is that, uh, in regards to that stuff. Um, but, uh, so a couple, I, I basically have been writing my insights down on it as I've been reading through the book. So here's some of the stuff that's kind of come up. Uh, the, actually one of the most interesting parts I found uh, in the entire book was the introduction that was uh, before the entire thing even kicked off because he makes this interesting observation about World War One. Uh, so I'm not going to, there's not a lot that I can draw on uh, here, but basically his insight is, and he changes kind of the frame of World War One because we think of World War Two as an ideological battle between uh, communism, fascism, and uh, democracy. Democracy kind of wins out. But he argues that the same thing is happening in World War One. And you can kind of see this with Woodrow Wilson and his uh, making the world safe for democracy kind of ideological bent. And But in that one, it wasn't uh, democracy versus uh, communism or fascism. It was democracy versus monarchy. And uh, democracy is the one that, that won out. And the oldest monarchy on the continent, which was the Habsburgs, was uh, collapsed with the Austro-Hungarian um, Empire being dismantled and all of the losing factions in World War One being made into democracies, and actually basically everyone that lost, or everyone across the uh, European continent was forcefully moved from their monarchies to democracies with the exception of Yugoslavia, I think? Um, so that was a very interesting insight, uh, and I think that'll have applications for, uh, as I'm reading various histories and looking at things like World War One histories and stuff like that, um, I think having that piece of context uh, will be an interesting way of of adding uh, a different lens when I'm, I'm analyzing that stuff. 
Uh, he also had this little line in there that I thought was very brilliant, where he reframes the idea of uh, history is written by the victors to include the fact that the counterfactual of what would have happened if the other side had won is unknowable, and therefore uh, that history is never written. So, uh, you know, if Austria-Hungary had won uh, World War One, we don't know what the history of that looks like, therefore the history is written by the victors. So even um, the, the general sense of it is, oh, you won, so you're the ones that get to say what's in the textbooks and stuff like that. But even uh, beyond that, uh, the counterfactual of what would have happened had this country won is never is an unknowable thing. You can always kind of shadow game and stuff like that. That's what uh, the alternate history channels and stuff like that on YouTube are all about. And I really like those, and I've done a couple of those on this channel. Uh, they're really fun. But the matter of the fact is, it's a there's so many variables and so many things that can happen that it's an unknowable question. But makes for fun content and fun things to think about. Uh, he His definition of a state I thought was a very apt uh, description. A lot of these are kind of the pros before we get into a bunch of the cons and kind of things that he was talking about. Um, so he defines it as an agency that exercises the compulsory territory monopoly of ultimate decision-making, jurisdiction, uh, and of taxation. And I thought that was a fair way of defining the state. A lot of times people kind of um, don't give it, like they'll, they'll reference it the state all the time, but they don't really give a definition of it. I thought that was a very good uh, definition for the context in which he was talking about it. So I wanted to bring that up. Uh, and then... Uh, he gets into this weird thing. So he makes a pretty big oversight for attributing monarchy with limited war and democracy with total war, uh, without acknowledging the major uh, shifts in war fighting and weapons advancement uh, that was at the core driver for this shift from limited to total war. Uh, even his distinction of even the distinction of non-combats and combats combatants uh, was not present until the modern era and the formation of the state as an institution. Uh, before that, the lines were very blurred uh, due to governments not. Uh, having a monopoly over violence. The Shivala Code uh, kept warriors uh, serving governments in check as best as it could uh, to kind of balance against brigands and stuff like that. So um, before our modern-day uh, rules of engagement that we kind of see with since uh, the modern times of where you have uh, what was dubbed Trinitarian Warfare by Clausewitz, uh, where you have the state, the military, and the people, uh, under this um, setup that was set up under a state system, uh, the people are supposed to be removed from uh, effects by war. That broke down during World War II, as was pointed out by uh, uh, Martin Van Krebeld. One of the things that transformed uh, war fighting from our, our third generation into our fourth generation and uh, gave a lot of that stuff. So... That doesn't necessarily line up, and then uh, uh, what if Altis has, uh, I don't remember exactly what video, but <clears throat> does a good job of demonstrating how military technology and, gov like, the governments that are possible under certain uh, time periods and stuff like that a lot of times correlate with the military technology of the time. Uh, and lots of advanced type stuff. Now, that in a certain sense, is a chicken or the egg kind of question because, yeah, there's advances in warfighting and stuff like that, but... Uh, you know, advance, there's different advances in how you take those and then use those and form those to their various purposes uh, can vary wildly, especially depending on different cultures and stuff like that. So uh, just because, like, power could have been centralizing and then that centralized power could have given the monetary uh, funds to be able to build more centralized, stronger armies, which then kind of reinforced 
the overall system that was being established. Whereas if that kind of stuff wasn't happening, uh, the military technology might have taken a different road. So that's kind of my points on that. Uh, <clears throat> so then uh, I got into this last week uh, where he has the assessment of cooperation and yielding and stuff like that. So I'm not going to touch on that, but that was from this book um, of uh, with human action where they... Uh, he basically assumes that everything is communal, and that's one issue that I kind of take. Uh, one of the things I have a, kind of a problem with this book uh, overall is it's like super materialistic, and it's in that regard it's kind of soulless because everything comes down to oh well people just do things because uh, it's in their own interest. There's no other reason for cooperation, and uh, it, the entire point is to just get more material stuff. There's no uh, human elements or anything like that, and it's. You know, after living through, like, the lockdowns and all that stuff, it's, you kind of realize, like, that stuff's really important, and to overlook it is uh, a mistake. Now, maybe, uh, I don't know, Hoppe personally, maybe he's uh, really likes kind of being monk mode and, and kind of keeping to himself and stuff like that, and so that's not something that he really considers of high priority, but I would say the general person, that is the case. Uh <clears throat> So, uh, interesting, on page uh, 106, Hoppe talks about removing the right to vote uh, from those who directly benefit from government. Uh, this idea dovetails nicely with uh, why the French may have not given the vote to the military, initially to prevent the conflict of interest and keep the military apolitical. Um, so, what I'm talking about there is, uh, interestingly, I found this out, I don't remember when, a little while ago, that uh, when the French were becoming a republic, one of the first... Uh, they gave the vote to almost everybody, including women, uh, before they gave the vote to the military, which is a very different way of doing things. And uh, considering how long the French people have been around and they have some weird ideas on stuff, but at the same time, I don't—it's not an idea that I wanted to discount because, um, you know, I, looking at things from such a radically different viewpoint might give you insight as to why that might be beneficial and could, uh, even if it's not something you're going to adopt yourself can help inform your own decisions in that regard. So I thought that was kind of interesting where that that kind of uh, meshed together in a certain uh, sense where uh, if you're a government official, if you're getting welfare, if you're in the military, in that regard, uh, your ability to uh, vote in your uh, someone to uh, basically give you more stuff, uh, basically you have to have skin in the game. That's one of the reasons why initially when America was founded, property ownership was the, the benchmark for whether or not you could vote uh, so that that kind of helped make it so that there was skin in the game uh, bringing that back would probably help things there's a lot of issues with democracy and it's degenerate uh, things that that doesn't necessarily translate in fact the primary thesis of the whole book is uh, that rulers of democracies uh, only have uh, present use of resources uh, and of government and therefore the resources of government, and therefore all their decisions are going to be short-term. They're going to look at how can I benefit from this in the direct here and now. They don't have a long-term outlook because uh, they, in like, let's just use the United States, for example, in you're the president, in four years' time or eight years' time, uh, you won't be there anymore, and there's nothing you can do uh, to affect and make sure those changes stay in place. So everything that you're going to do is present-oriented. Uh, overall, I think 
looking at society and stuff like that, I think this does bear out uh, pretty accurately. Monarchies he contested um, were, by contrast, uh, hereditary by nature, and because they could be passed from uh, father to son, and uh, there was a reason to have a longer-term outlook on the property and the taxation and stuff like that within your society, and therefore uh, were much more future-oriented and uh, stable because of that. <clears throat> um, so that that's some of the arguments there. Um, then he gets into... Oh, he gets into private security later. I touched on, touched on that later, or touched on that on my last video. Basically, private security doesn't work because it's a mercenary uh, army, and mercenary armies are only loyal to uh, payment, and they're not willing to sacrifice. Like, their their reason for fighting their uh, raison d'etre uh, isn't strong enough to keep them fighting long term, and they'll just it, just put yourself in their shoes. Like, why would you want to sacrifice yourself for like you know? 10 pounds, uh, of gold or whatever. It's just not worth it. So, <clears throat> um, people need a higher calling and purpose to fight wars for the, uh, for people. And so that's why I don't think private security works very well. Um, <clears throat> so one of the other things he talked about, uh, was how a communist or syndicalist nation should go about removing, <clears throat> Uh, or returning private property to various people. Uh, and it was not far off of how the USSR did it when it fell, I believe. Uh, but the thing is, it didn't go well. Basically, his idea was, you know, it's going to be a poor nation when it collapses, so they should sell off all this stuff to foreign uh, governments that will bring in money. That money then can be used to build up the nation. That's not what happened. What basically happened is foreign interests came in and bought up uh, with their money, all of the stuff on pennies on the dollar, so because it was super cheap, uh, because the entire economy was just in shambles, and people, people were kind of stuck. It's like, okay, so you can sell me your house for five dollars, uh, which is well below what it's actually worth, uh, and you can eat for today, or you can starve to death, and that was that's an extreme example, and I'm not sure like that isn't exactly the situation a lot of people were put in, but. There was a lot of decisions that people had to make where they were unoptimized decisions, um, either because people were just uh, basically given this stuff and they didn't really care about the long-term stuff, or, and, and they're just like, uh, kind of mercenary in, in how they're like, oh, well, I just got this, now I'm going to sell it to a foreign person so I can make out good, and they didn't really care about the interests of their, their neighbor, their nation, and things like that. Or uh, they were potentially in that, that situation where it's like, uh, you know, I, I don't have any food or things like that. So, uh, you can look, you can see this with previous, uh, nations, nations that were previously communist, uh, how expensive the, the housing is there. Uh, so basically what happens is the newly acquired property was brought up for pennies on the dollar by foreigners, uh, because the locals could not compete with the amount of money that they're bringing in to the economy. Uh, all the industry was then strip-mined and financialized with no concern given to the long-term growth prospects. Uh, all the working-age people moved out of the country, leaving, uh, so Lithuania, uh, the, the Baltic countries, is it uh, Lithuania, um, th those three countries that are right on the Baltic Sea, um, they basically don't have any young people there. They all moved to uh, either France or Germany or I think maybe Poland, but 
basically they all moved out of there because there was no jobs, there was no, nothing to do. That um, it was either sit around and and do nothing or uh, you know go to another country and try to make it. Basically, killing those countries. Um, so it was moved out of the, uh, leaving the old and dying. Uh, if they did stay, they could never own a house as prices there reflected the USA housing market. So this is what I was talking about. The US, basically, if you wanted to buy a house in Poland, it would cost you as much as, like, let's say a starter home here costs, uh, nowadays it's getting ridiculous, but let's say it costs 300000 right? Like, that, you go to Poland, and Poland's, like, the average uh, income in Poland is $5,000 a year or something like that. It, maybe that's a little extreme, but it is significantly less than the United States. And uh, the the house prices are like three hundred thousand to four hundred thousand. Like they're like Americans on our salary with the median salary being sixty seventy k uh, can't afford to buy houses. And there it's like half quarter, like way less than Americans, and it costs as much. Now the rent is super cheap, but that's kind of shows you how um, you know there's like kind of a world monopolistic kind of thing that's going on where uh, these countries. Uh, there's global financial interests that want countries to be uh, poor and weak and uh, not able to unite. Uh, These ex-Soviet states are textbook examples of what what the World Economic Forum means when they say you will uh, own nothing and be happy, when they say and be happy. So basically what they're doing is it's like, oh yeah, everything's affordable, but like you're not allowed to own anything, right? All of these, uh, the, the houses are all bought. There's no... Uh, no houses for even sale. If they do sell it, it's for such a high cost that it can only be sold to other globalists that own all the money uh, and things like that. And so you're just stuck. But then, you know, your rent is, uh, you know, Poland is, well, let's just use an American example. Like, uh, you know, let's say a house, you can't buy a house because it's a million dollars for a starter home, but you can rent it for like $300 a month. So it's like, it's a no, no brainer. Like you don't even have really a choice in that regard, but the they're taking something away from you for, for, for by not being able to own anything and and you're just basically uh they're trying to create a new vassal state in a certain sense uh hoppin when talking about immigration fundamentally does not un- understand what a nation is or is willfully ignorant it ignorant of it considering how he alludes to it uh i lean towards willful ignorance he there's so many times that it comes up in the book where uh he'll just kind of say something and uh, you know, he'll talk about like, oh yeah, you just allow people in and it's not a big deal because they're not of a different nation and they don't, aren't going to culturally clash and stuff like that. And he sometimes alludes to the fact that, oh, maybe they would, but then ignores the fact that people don't really necessarily have a control over this because, um, w- one of the other things he talks about is, oh, well, uh, people would have control over their own neighborhoods and communities and stuff like that. But that's just not actually true by the way that he sets the whole thing up. Because the way he wants to set things up is, uh, let's say I have a big plot of land, and I can just invite anyone from across the entire world. Let's say I have a large plot of land, it's got a factory on it, and I have uh, enough space to put a dinky town, let's, let's say. And I live in this various neighborhood. Now, I could hire all the people in the neighborhood, or I could import a bunch of people from the third world into my town, and uh, have them to run the factory and leave everyone else uh, without any jobs. Uh, his argument is, well, uh, you know, in your community, you would have the right to uh, 
exclude, but or you could exclude people off your own private property. But that doesn't change the fact that my neighbor, like the one that owns the factory, can just import people from the third world <clears throat> and make it so that I can't get a job. And then, uh, you know, what's the way to hold those people accountable? He says, like, I don't know, somehow community, like, basically, at the end of the day, he always, it's the same libertarian thing where they, they want a government, but they can't acknowledge the fact that it would be a government because you they're like, oh, everyone's an individual. But also in this situation, we need collectivization. But we can't say collectivization because that goes against the whole individual thing that we argue for. And so it's this like catch-22 that they just kind of gloss over all throughout the entire book. And it's kind of frustrating when you, you see this kind of stuff. Um, so let me think. Yeah, so it's just, it's really frustrating with with all that stuff. Um, and then on top of that, the idea that you get to pick your neighbors, this isn't true. This is one of the things he says in the book. Oh, well, you get to choose your neighbors. No, you get to choose your neighbors when you move into a spot. But once you're, let's say uh, I live in a neighborhood, uh, everyone's like got their quarter, suburb, it's suburbia, everyone's got their little quarter acre that lives next to me. Uh, it seems like a solid neighborhood that I decided to move in. I move in, uh, we all get along, blah, blah, blah. Now, so one of my neighbors decides to move out and you can sell to the highest bidder kind of thing. And let's say, uh, let's go back to the example of like kind of the global financial uh, elites that can, want to control everything. Uh, instead of selling, I don't have any control over who he sells it to. So if he sells it to someone that isn't a good fit for the neighborhood, there's absolutely nothing I can do. And now I have to live with someone. And the only real option is for everyone to just basically uh, keep running away and stuff like that. You don't actually get to have your own land. You don't get to have any rules. You don't get to enforce your way of life in anywhere that you are. You just... Uh, are at the whims of other people, and if someone can come in and, with higher amounts of money, put someone there that they don't, that you don't want there, and uh, that doesn't, isn't a good fit for the thing, then basically you have to just cede all your land to this invading force of people that are going to come in through financial means and dominate your neighborhood. This is what gentrification is, and then you just have to run off to the next neighborhood until they. Uh, come for your next neighborhood and the next one and you just have to keep running and running and running like at a certain point there's nowhere to run you have to hold your ground at some point and that is something that just fundamentally can't be um, acknowledged in this anarcho-capitalist libertarian worldview because you have no such thing as a nation uh, and communal uh, organizations while kind of tacitly uh, given lip service to can't exist because of the the individualist mindset and conglomeration that exists within the ideological framework so it's just a mess um and that's kind of the, the frustrating thing but anyway getting back to all the various notes that i wrote throughout reading this whole book uh it's not how long is the book it's almost 300 pages i think uh 292 292 pages um so uh and then this gets into the whole thing. Hoppe and libertarians in general are way too focused on, on monetary benefits. Socialism doesn't work because you need money as a way to properly run a cost-benefit analysis. Libertarians, while including money, uh, only seem... Uh, libertarians, while they include money in the cost-benefit analysis, this is why socialism doesn't work. You're missing an entire uh, variable when you're trying to understand what the decision is you're supposed to make. Um they only seem concerned in increasing the overall amount of it <clears throat> uh, and it is the ultimate goal in a cost-benefit analysis that they do. This leads them to uh, take stances that destroy a nation simply because it is slightly more profitable or efficient <clears throat> and they pay lip service to these other concerns, but whenever it comes down to actually uh, outlining 
well, is this more important or this more important? They always take the monetary route. <clears throat> then on top of that, uh, Hoppe does another thing that is, I found to be a total joke, uh, where he claims that people, uh, oh, this is the people being uh, able to choose their neighbors. We touched on that. Uh, then he makes claims about free trade. Now, <clears throat> I'll add a ca caveat here. Uh, Ian Fletcher's great work, Free Trade Doesn't Work, came out in 2011. Uh, Democracy, the, the God That Failed, came out in the 90s. So he didn't have that work to reference from. Um, and I don't know if Hoppe's still alive. I think he is. Uh, but anyway, if he is still alive, I think he's fairly old at this point. Um, uh, Hoppe makes the claim that free trade and free immigration aren't inherently linked. Uh, they are, as Vox Day has demonstrated through his labor mobility theory. Uh, when you're talking about the free trade of goods and services, uh, labor is a is a good that is it is an input into the overall process. Therefore, it is something that has to be uh, brought over. On top of that, uh, he references um, Ricardo and his his work, and uh, I've touched on it in a different video. But there's uh, the seven du dubious assumptions of uh, Ricardo and what are the, the there's an economic term called the Ricardian vice where you basically simplify a model down to such basic variables as to make the analysis completely to make the analysis easier but at the same time it absolutely does not reflect reality at all because all the variables that would go into it have been just ignored so that it's like oh look x equals y and it's like well okay but there's 50 other variables that would make it so that x does not equal y um and Vox Day does a really good uh, job of demonstrating this point. If you guys want a good argument on that, uh, Tom Woods did a debate between Vox Day and somebody that I'm blanking the name of. But um, go look that up. It's fantastic. Uh, uh, also, his argument against protection is a complete straw man. Uh, again, the key factor as to uh, why uh, reducto ad absurdum does not work is ignoring that the nation exists. So basically, he doesn't reduct to ad absurdum uh, to demonstrate <clears throat> that protectionism is like just this silly thing. But the reductal ad absurdum only works if uh, you don't acknowledge the fact that there are uh, nations of people with that are unique cultural. They have a unique cultural um, and uh, hereditary lineage and stuff like that that deserve their own deserve to live as they see fit under their own governance. <clears throat> Then on top of that, uh, Henry Hazlitt uses, or Hoppe uses Henry Hazlitt's argument that uh, money spent on foreign goods in America means that companies with that foreign currency must buy products uh, and invest in the U.S. However, this uh, this is another thing that uh, Vox did a video on, uh, showing that this doesn't really work. And the reason for that uh, is that the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. So this argument might work if it wasn't the United States we were talking about, <laughs> uh, meaning that. Uh, there is a third use for that money, namely paying off corp, uh, the corporate debt. Thus, money that uh, leaves the United States uh, will never, generally never return to it because <clears throat> that money is brought out of the United States and then funneled into this debt, the debt that then destroys the money um, and removes it from circulation. Uh, going to the next thing, uh, Hoppe is correct that uh, half measures of between trade and immigration create an issue like increasing the likelihood of exporting capital uh, of course, it is much cheaper to move people from Mexico to the United States factories than it is to move factories 
to Mexico from the U.S. That is why companies based in the U.S. are uh, not creating products here, should be treated as foreign trade. Hopper rightfully points out uh, the false uh, two-party system and how American conservatism conserve nothing. So that was a plus. Uh, libertarian materialism that doesn't allow for God and the supernatural feels hollow and cold. This is something that I kind of noticed as a repeating pattern as I was reading all of his arguments about stuff, is it all came back down to uh, people just want more shit, so therefore everything works out. And it's just like, it just does not give any uh, room for community and, and the supernatural and uh, the want to work together and family <clears throat> and all these things that are very human to the uh, part of the human experience. People don't cooperate in stuff like that just because, to a certain extent, they cooperate because division of labor and all that stuff works out nice. But that <clears throat> the real driving force behind it, that's like a additional bonus to how it works out. It, it's not what they don't do that stuff because of it. It's it's a benefit because uh, people enjoy community and and bringing themselves together and, and building something greater than themselves. <clears throat> Uh, Hopper recognized the moral problem with the non-aggression principle, but doesn't seem to address uh, it as such. <clears throat> he claims that via property you can exclude uh, moral degenerates, but <clears throat> that does not mean that your neighbors will, and so societally you will be in the same position as if you let them in. Uh, only through collective action, which again is against individualism, can degeneracy be held at bay, which he admits but then won't address the contradiction between uh, the contradiction of collectivism basically has to create a government to enforce these type of things. So, you know, it's just issues like this that kind of kept popping up throughout the book. Um, <clears throat> if you want... <sighs> yeah, if, if you're familiar with libertarian arguments, you'll probably have uh, heard all this stuff before. Uh, Hopper literally cannot uh, describe the desire for a community or uh, neighborhood in any other context than materialism. The need for human interpersonal relationships, not as a means to an end, but an end of, a, of itself never seems to enter his mind. Hoppe <clears throat> uh, wants to argue that private security is tied with uh, private insurance uh, to mitigate that. Uh, there was a debate in on the Tom Woods channel again that talked about uh, how insurance wouldn't be able to work with this because if you, you're invaded by a foreign nation and you have to fight a guerrilla war for 10 years, how the heck is an insurance company be able to cover that? It can't. It, it wouldn't work. Um, and again, you, you need a higher moral purpose to be able to uh, w be willing to fight a guerrilla war for 10 to 20 years. Uh, look at uh, Afghanistan and Vietnam. Those people weren't fighting uh, to kick... America out of those countries because they wanted like some economic benefit thing. There was a higher moral calling for those people to fight those wars. <clears throat> uh, he also makes a point that, so he makes a point when you're talking about uh, the sovereign having to dispute uh, resolutions. So you have a conflict between A and B, and then the sovereign is the one that takes care of it, basically uh, talking about jurisdictions and makes the argument that, well, why don't we just have basically an infinite amount of jurisdictions, the fact that that's just kind of a very unwieldy system. Uh, but the point that he makes is uh, this is basically the, the level at which states work at. <clears throat> um, but the, the way that states uh, work, and because they don't have their own jurisdictions and work in anarchy, the 
the resolution for a lot of their problems is war, which he says he doesn't want. But, you know, if you just had everyone have their own jurisdiction, the way that you would decide most conflicts is through war, which means you'd have uh, neighborhood fights all the time. Now, what would happen is those would scale up until it was a large enough size that there'd be a large conglomerate, like a gang or something like that, that would uh, or a cartel, that would basically um, monopolize the uh, force use within that area and from there start building towards what effectively works as a government. But uh, on top of that, um, consolidation of states... So he talks about how medieval Europe used to have, like, all these... Uh, Germany is a good example where uh, before 1871, it was, like, 30-something different nations, and then all of a sudden it combined into one. <clears throat> but that also had a history of all those different nations working under a single regime in the Holy Roman Empire and all of that history. So it's not like they didn't have a unifying system behind them in previous times. <clears throat> so Germany unifies in that year, but if you look at a lot of the nations and stuff like that and how they're broken up... Uh, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, there's a natural borders that are created by uh, various geographic uh, locations. So South America is the most prominent one uh, <clears throat> where uh, there's kind of a running joke in the map uh, community, map making community, where uh, everyone's like, oh, check out this alternate history or whatever. And South America is literally the same in every single scenario. And the reason for that is because uh, there's so many... Basically, all the countries that are in South America are created by natural borders via uh, the Amazon rainforest, the various mountain ranges that exist down there, and uh, various rivers that run through the area. So that you just kind of nat <clears throat> uh, naturally get these large uh, dividing uh, not things, geographies, or uh, topographical things. And then you have these large, wide, open plain type areas, and that's where everybody lives. <clears throat> so that's why these areas work as uh, as singular nations. That doesn't apply to everywhere. Uh, America is probably one of the contradictions in this because uh, America isn't so <laughs> such a large landmass that it should be a lot of different nations split up by different things. The various waterways. Uh, you have the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains that would divide uh, the coasts from each other. Um, things of that nature. So there are ones that kind of go against the grain there's ones that go with it but uh there is factors to keep these nations as individual nations that uh wasn't acknowledged uh obviously you can't talk about everything when you're going through a book like this so i am being a little nitpicky with that one <clears throat> uh also i found it interesting so one of the arguments that he was making at the very end of the book was uh how are you going to deal with security and all that stuff and and how people are and his basic answer was insurance and it's like if you look at america like that's that's basically what we live in right now. And uh, by its very nature, insurance is going to uh, pick security over freedom. So because insurance is the one that's running things like that, their insurance is going to enforce burdens and costs on people that are going to push their behaviors towards a less risky type environment. And that less, less risky thing is going to make it so they're going to trade freedom for safety every single time. And when you trade freedom for safety, you get neither and you end up in a tyranny. And so you just end up with this leviathan of a insurance conglomerate that basically rules over you. And that in a certain sense, you can make the argument that that's what America lives under right now. So uh, 
And if you look at the response to the COVID-19 craziness with lockdowns and stuff like that, that is probably how an insurance-run system might uh, react. We don't necessarily have a strict example to prove that out, but um, that's that's something to think about. Um, And then the last little thing uh, is he talked about America and how, uh, oh, they're so expansionist and warlike now that they run the empire and, and became... Um, the world empire after World War II. But the matter of the fact is, America has always been an expansionary power and a warlike power. They're very Roman in that esque, uh, Roman in that sense, because uh, ever since they've taken, uh, ever since 1776, uh, there was, shortly after that, they did the Louisiana Purchase, and then there was uh, Manifest Destiny that rolled across the entire United States, and they were fairly unopposed, but there was still Native Americans and stuff like that there. Didn't matter, rolled them over, signed contracts with them, ignored those contracts. Um, all that stuff, apparently all those contracts still exist in a vault somewhere, and if you look at them, uh, they're all violated. Like, we haven't followed a single one. Um, so, uh, America's always been an expansionary imperialist power. It just didn't get onto the world stage for so long because they had an entire continent to conquer first, and they kind of came late to the game, right? Uh, uh, most, of Ameri- or most of Europe had already been settled and, and covered and stuff like that. Uh, and that's why they started branching out to the Americas, and then after the Americas got filled up and um, enough uh, advances had been made, then there was a scramble for Africa. That And these things America didn't really take part in, but that's because they didn't... It took them till almost 1900 to conquer, like, the land that they already had and inhabit and stuff like that. I mean, even places like North Dakota are super sparsely populated. I think it was... Uh, well, and then Alaska, I guess, is probably the least populated of all the states. But if you're talking about the lower 48, I believe North Dakota is, like, the least populated. And, you know, it's it's a flat, cold wasteland out there. I've lived out there. It's uh, There's aspects of it that I like, but it is a harsh place to live. Um, so, yeah, basically, America's always been imperialist. But, anyway, those are kind of my thoughts. Uh, I, You know, if if you really like libertarian thought and like that stuff... This is definitely the book for you. If you're kind of against libertarian thought and you kind of would come to the same conclusions I did, uh, you're probably, listen to this, you're probably good. Um, it's, there's a lot of arguments that you're going to, if you're familiar with how libertarian thought works and, and the various arguments they have, most uh, libertarians, when you hear various arguments that they're going to make for insurance and the stuff like that and uh, how to run various libertarian societies and things like that. They're basically going to be referring to demo- this book, Democracy, the God that Fails, and probably Human Action by um, Mises. Uh, those are probably the two core books. So if if you're familiar with those arguments, uh, you probably don't have to read these books. Uh, if you really want to, go for it. Uh, you know, demo- you know, Human Action is like 900 pages, but and I haven't read that one yet, so I shouldn't probably say what it's about. But... Uh, you know, if you want to read this, go for it. Um, but, uh, if you're familiar with a lot of these arguments, then you're, you're probably, I I guess it'll be a quick read. Uh, one of the bonuses is there's so many footnotes that half the pages are uh, only half page. So it goes a little bit quicker. It's not truly 292 pages. Um, anyway, that's kind of my thoughts on that. Uh, hopefully you guys found it interesting. Uh, remember we're on YouTube, BitChute, uh, Podbean, Apple, uh, Spotify, all that good stuff. So, uh, follow me wherever you like me and, uh, and listen away. Give me a, a like and, and a subscribe and all that stuff. I'd greatly appreciate that. Leave a comment cause, uh, no one leaves comments. So that means I get to read it. And if it's insightful, maybe it'll end up as a podcast or I'll, I'll write you back. 
Uh, but anyway, hopefully you guys had a good day and found this insightful. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, this has been According to Andrew. And have a good one.